Good morning once again. And welcome to First Baptist Church. If you're a visitor with us, we're just very glad that you're here and hopefully we'll, everybody will get around to meet you and you won't be super overwhelmed by that. But we're glad you're here on this snowy day especially. One last quick announcement I wanted to add in there. Uh, our dear sister Elsie Simmons passed away last weekend at the age of 94 and her memorial service will be on Tuesday morning right here uh, at 11 a.m. So we'd love for you to join us for that if you're able to remember the life of Elsie Simmons and God's faithfulness to her. This morning I'll be preaching uh, from Genesis 12 through Genesis 21. It's hard, yeah. it's hard to pick a, one story from that, so I had Mark read one that's very poignant in the story. It'll be an overview, but I encourage you to turn in your scripture your Bible if you have one, or there's one in the pew back in front of you to Genesis 12, and we'll start there. But we're, we're walking through the story from the very beginning all the way up until Jesus and following the line and the story of, of how the people of God have expected the fulfillment of a promise that finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus when he comes, which we celebrate at Christmas. And we're following this story through, this, through the stories of five different couples and their children, and speaking of children and um, Sarah being promised to have a child, I remember back 23 years to when Carrie and I had our first child, Emma, and we were in our early 20s at the time. And when I think about that, I look back and I think, man, we were kids ourselves. We were young, and there were so many ways in which we had no idea what we were doing, and we'll be the first to admit it. But as, as we parented and had many, many, made many, many mistakes along the way, uh, we learned and we grew, because time and experience are wonderful teachers, aren't they? Well, fast forward 15 years, 15 years passes by, and we're pregnant with our fifth and youngest child, Daisy, and and early on in this pregnancy, you know, you, you, you take the pregnancy test and um, you're kind of old hat at it by the time you get to five. Like, okay, two lines, let's go. And, you know, you make the, you, you make the appointment with the, with the doctor and, and generally those first appointments I'd go in with Carrie. And I can't remember how many weeks along we were, but uh, we go and we visit the doctor and we were mildly and a little humorously surprised to, to learn that with that pregnancy, Carrie was considered to be a high-risk pregnancy because she was of advanced maternal age. Sorry. She was 37, I think. 37. So anything above 35, apparently, is advanced maternal age, and you can be older than that and be an NFL quarterback, so, you know, but with babies, it's a little bit different. Now, could you imagine what a doctor would say today to an 89-year-old woman coming in to ask for a pregnancy test, or a prenatal checkup, or an ultrasound? Um, they would likely, I mean, sweetly, I'm sure, laugh, her, laugh at her, maybe behind their masks, laugh at her at the clinic, maybe offer to escort her out to the car, offer to make an appointment with the psychiatrist for her, you know, call her other children if she had, you know. But today, you know, of course, we, 
we look at um, we look at a story like this, and we know the story, so it seems regular. But if you know anybody that's 89 years old, or you're 89 yourself, that's not something that you see coming, and it's not something that is very normal. And so, as we look at the second of the five couples in our Advent series, Abram and Sarai, who will later be named Abraham and Sarah, by the way. They were 99 and 89 when they were renamed. Could you imagine living 99 years with the same name and then God going, oh, like, by the way, you're getting a new name. It would, it would be a huge change. And by the way, you're going to have a child. So we look at the second of five couples. We looked at Adam and Eve last week, Abram and Sarai this week, as we continue to trace the story of Christ coming through his family history, through the story of the entire Old Testament right up to the birth of Jesus himself, in whom are met all the hopes and all the fears of all the years. So let's look at these beloved people, these saints, Abram and Sarai. And the first thing we see in this story is a promise being made. Many generations, of course, have passed from Adam and Eve and the, the tragedy and the hope of their sons. Remember, their first sons, Cain and Abel, who were these men, and one of them rose up and killed the other. And, and that was Cain who killed Abel, and then Cain was exiled. And, and they were left, in, in a sense, wondering if God was going to fulfill his promises. And then they have a, a son named Seth. Now, one descendant of Adam through Seth was a man named Noah, who, along with his family, survives a worldwide deluge or, or a flood, and in a sense becomes a new Adam, a new starting point, a new head of the human race as God kind of restarts humanity due, due to the great wickedness that's on the face of the earth. And from the line of Noah comes his son, or I should say his sons are Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And from the line of Shem, we get actually the ethnic terminology. You've heard the phrase thrown around, anti-Semite. That comes from the name of Shem, who is Noah's son. Semite or Semitic comes from that name. And so the descendants of Shem, all the way down to Abraham, who's ninth in line from Shem. And you can read all about this in Genesis chapter 11, especially if you like reading genealogies. From him comes a man named Abram, the ninth in line. And then in Genesis 12, Yahweh, God, speaks to Abram with a command and a promise in Genesis 12, verse 1. Now Yahweh, God, the Lord, said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as Yahweh had told him. And Lot went with him. Lot was his nephew. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Let's skip ahead to verse 7. Then Yahweh appeared. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to Yahweh who had appeared to him. And then in verse 8 it says, Abram called upon the name of the Lord. Now over the course of the next eight chapters, and, and uh, eight chapters that cover a course of 25 years, God will reiterate that promise. He'll even expand on that promise to Abram. 
which can be summarized in four, what I, what I think are very helpful headings for understanding this promise. And the first of those headings is that God will give Abram many descendants, and he will become a great nation, both he and Sarai, who were at this time, he was 75, Sarai was 65, and they were childless. God is saying that they would be blessed with descendants as numerous as the dust of the earth and as numerous as the stars of the sky. And he told them that nations and kings would descend from them. And God's promise to Abram would continue on to his son and through his son Isaac, a son that would be born to Abram and Sarah. That's the first part of the promise, a great nation, many descendants. The second part of the promise is a promise of land. So no less than, than five times through chapters, from chapters 12 to 17, Yahweh promises the land of Canaan to Abram. So this was an important part of the ancient Near East, a, a very strategic swath of land along the eastern shores of the Mediterranean Sea, all the way down, God promises, all the way down to the Nile River and up to the Euphrates River. So God says, this is the land that you're going to have, that your descendants are going to inhabit. Uh, but it wasn't an empty land. It was a land that was occupied by multiple powerful tribes that, didn't, that weren't willing to just hand it over to Abram when he showed up. And so Abram comes into this land as a stranger, as a sojourner, as somebody who doesn't even own a parcel of that land, until Sarah dies, he buys one field with a cave in it in order to bury her. It's the only piece of land he owns in his lifetime. The third part of the promise to Abram is the promise of blessing. God promises to bless rather than to curse Abram and Sarai. And the, and the idea of, of blessing should remind us of, of God's blessing of humanity in Genesis 1. When he creates man in his image and he blessed them. And the, the idea of cursing should remind us of the fall in Genesis chapter 3. And so what God is alluding here to when he says, I will bless you and I will cause you to be a blessing, is that through Abram and Sarai, then God plans to reverse the effects of the fall and restore humanity to their created intention. God also makes clear that the blessing isn't to stop with them. It's not just for their sake. The blessing is for the sake of all of the families of the earth because through them, through Abraham and his descendants, they would be blessed. So the blessing is the third part. And the fourth, final part of this great promise to Abraham, to Abram, is that he will have a covenant relationship with God. A special relationship. Chapter 17, verse 7. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout your generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. It says, I will be their God. It's a great promise. I will be your God. You will be my people. I will be in covenant relationship with you. And again, this, this echoes the Garden of Eden. God, God makes clear his desire there, and he makes it clear again here, his intention to be in relationship with his people. Now, if you're serious about understanding the Bible, if you want to know the Bible and know what it's about and understand it, you'll do well to read and meditate on the story 
of Abraham and Sarah. Because one key to reading and understanding the entire Bible is to, to understand, to comprehend the character and the immensity of this promise. The promise to Abram and Sarai, because what it does is it forms the background of the rest, excuse me, the backbone of the rest of the biblical narrative, which is the story of God working out this promise all the way to the end of Revelation. This covenant promise structures the whole Bible. But this morning, though, I'm not going to preach on the whole Bible. I would like, you're welcome. I would like us, though, to meditate for a moment on the nature of promises in general. So by their very nature, promises do not serve our desire for instant gratification. If I make a promise to you, that means something is going to happen in the future, not right now. Promises require waiting. And waiting, in turn, requires faith that the promise and the waiting will not be pointless, but will have an end, will have a fulfillment. So promise requires, a promise requires both faith and hope. And both faith and hope require hearts and lives that are keyed into the person of God and the character of God. Because the promise is not dependent on Abram. In fact, we're going to look at these stories where Abram and Sarai undermine the promise. They threaten the promise. They jeopardize the promise. And yet God keeps the promise because of his gracious and good character. His gracious and good character. And even when they jeopardize the promise, they cannot undermine, we cannot undermine God's tenacious devotion to keeping his promises. So let's look now then at the threat. Waiting, which is something that we all find difficult. We all struggle with waiting, with patience. We all find waiting difficult, but it's central to this story. I mean, think of your own life and how many, how many foolish things do we do? How many foolish decisions do we make simply because we're tired of waiting? Perhaps because we're tired of waiting on God or because we're not quite sure that he will do what we want him to do. This narrative, what it does is highlights three distinct times when Abram and Sarai act foolishly and actually threaten the fulfillment of God's promises. And two of these stories, interestingly, on either end, of this either end of this passage, mirror each other almost exactly. One takes place in Genesis 12. One takes place in Genesis chapter 20. Now, in Genesis 12, the story is Abram and Sarai and their whole household, they go down to Egypt. They go down to Egypt because there's a famine in the land. And as they go there, Abram speaks to his wife, and he, he says, you are beautiful. You're stunning. And if they find out that you're my wife, they're going to kill me to take you. So act like you're my sister. Tell them that you're my sister. Now the Egyptians do. They notice her beauty, and because she's his sister, Pharaoh sends and takes Sarai to be part of his harem, to be one of his wives. And so Abram risks losing his wife, he risks her honor, he risks their future, 
And he risks the, the promise or the, the fulfillment of a promise of many descendants through here. And he does all that simply to save his own neck. But if you know the story, God intervenes and God rescues Sarai from from Pharaoh, he intervenes in Abraham's foolishness. But eight chapters later, and almost 25 years later, this exact situation takes place again. And isn't it amazing how we cycle that way too? <laughs> we go back to the same mistakes of mistrust and faithlessness, just like Abraham did. 25 years later, at 99 years old, Abram, whose name now has been changed to Abraham, and he again lies about his relationship with his 89-year-old wife, Sarai, who's now been renamed Sarah. And once again, a powerful man, this, this time a king named Abimelech, takes Sarah to be one of his wives. She's 89 years old. She's beautiful. He takes her. And once again, God intervenes because Abraham has once again put the promise in jeopardy. God intervenes, and there's no question then who Isaac's father was. There's no question as to his heredity. Even though Abraham jeopardizes the promise, God steps in and intervenes and doesn't let it happen. Once again, he rescues Abraham from his own fear and from his own folly. But perhaps the most grievous moment of putting God's promise in jeopardy comes at the very center of this narrative in Genesis chapter 16. And in this story, it's Sarai who actually takes the helms and helm and takes the reins, questioning God's goodness, questioning his provision, taking control of the situation and enlisting her husband in a plot to fulfill God's promises for him because God is apparently not very good at it. And the, the entire story actually smells just like Genesis 3. Listen to this. Genesis chapter 16, verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, listen to this, Yahweh, the Lord, has prevented me from bearing children. God is not good. He's against us. He isn't going to do what he said. She's questioning the goodness, the provision of Yahweh. Yahweh has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. Yes, go in and have sexual relations with her. It may be that I shall obtain a children by her, like surrogacy. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. And if you remember the story of the garden, what happened? The wife, or the wife, Adam's wife, saw that the fruit was good, took of it, questioning God's goodness and her provision, and gave some of it to her husband, who was with her who took and eat of it, ate of it as well. And then when God comes and speaks to Adam, what does he say to Adam? Because you listen to the voice of your wife, cursed is the ground because of you. Man, this doesn't mean don't ever listen to your wife. That's not what I'm saying. <laughs> Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So this attempt at surrogacy becomes a botch, not to mention a sinful attempt to play God. This is another fall narrative. This is another Garden of Eden. This is another moment 
when things look like they're going to fall apart. If you're just reading through, you think, really, are Abram and Sarai here going to be Adam and Eve all over again and get exiled and everything go to pot? They attempt to play God and it results in bitterness. It results in relational strife. It results in suffering, especially for seemingly innocent Hagar and her son Ishmael, who were otherwise innocent in this situation. And Abram basically murders them, sends them out into the desert with a bottle of water and says, have fun, fend for yourselves. But here's the point. The only threat to God's promises coming to fruition come from hearts that are motivated by fear and lacking in faith. God's promises are never threatened by time, which is what we always think the threat is. They're never threatened by time. They're never threatened by his inability to keep his promises. And this Brothers and sisters, this is good news. God will protect and keep his own promises no matter how much we mess up. He will keep his promises. He is faithful. And so even though they threaten the promises over and over again, God fulfills them and he makes a covenant with Abram. In Abraham and Sarah's story, it's marked like many of our own stories by questioning and by doubt Waiting, what waiting does is it produces impatience in us. It, pr- it produces us questions. What are you doing, God? Why? Exasperation. And in Genesis chapter 15, Abram gets exasperated with God. And he says to him, O Lord, Yahweh, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus, one of his servants. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. You can, you can hear his angst here. What's going on, God? Why haven't you answered your promise? Why haven't you answered my prayers and fulfilled your promise? A couple chapters later in chapter 17, verse 17, Abram, Abraham himself laughs when God informs him that he and Sarah will have a son. Verse 17, he says to God, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God, I don't see that this is going to happen. Can we just go this way? Can we go this way? But in each of these instances of questioning, of doubt, even despair, God responds to Abraham in grace. So in chapter 15, he says this, Behold, the word of Yahweh came to him, and your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought Abraham outside, excuse me, Abram outside, and said, Look toward heaven, number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to them, So shall your offspring be. And in chapter 17, in response to Abram, he says, No, but Sarah, your wife, not Ishmael, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, which means laughter. Now, it's normal for us as humans to doubt and to question. I think, in some senses, God even expects it. I don't think he commands it, but he expects it because he knows who we are. He knows we're frail. He knows we're weak. He knows we're people prone to fear and doubt, prone to taking matters into our own hands, prone to impatience and to folly. But God graciously meets us despite our doubts and fears. He gives us a way to overcome fear, to overcome doubt, to overcome 
questioning. But how does he do that? How does he give us a, a way to overcome fear, doubt, and questioning? I think he does it by making us wait. He makes us wait, and in waiting, what grows but patience? And when patience grows, endurance comes along with it. And with that character, he gives us the longing and even the ache that goes along with it in order to strengthen our faith. But I think in that, he also gives us physical signs to encourage us and to remind us during the wait. He gives us what are called signs of the covenant. So with Abram in Genesis chapter 15, he makes a covenant with him and he physically has these animals butchered and makes an ancient kind of treaty with Abram that's very physical. You could smell it, you could see it, you can touch it. And he comes visibly to Abram and makes a promise. And then a couple chapters later, he gives Abraham the sign of circumcision, which is a physical reminder through the ages and through the generations of the promise to Abram and all his descendants. God knows that we too are forgetful. We need regular reminders. So he's given us his word to remind us constantly as we read it, as we hear it, as we touch it even. He's given us baptism and the Lord's Supper, which are physical reminders of Christ's work on our behalf. And he gives us the gift of other believers, reminding us, not to neglect meeting with each other so that we can be encouraged and strengthened in our faith in the midst of our waiting. He knows it's difficult for us to live by faith, which is why he makes such a big deal of faith. Genesis 15, 6, one of the most oft-quoted verses from the Old Testament. says, Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So Abraham laughs at God, chapter 17, knowing he and Sarah are much too old to have a child. And Sarah does the same, same thing in chapter 18, verse 12. Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And Yahweh said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for Yahweh? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I'll return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for Yahweh? This is the question of faith. And as for Abraham and Sarah, the question is answered. At least it's answered in part when the Lord opens Sarah's womb and gives her a child in her old age. Isaac is born when she is at the prime maternal age of 90. Abraham is 100. Despite their failure and doubt, despite all the waiting, God keeps his promises. So... Is anything too hard for the Lord? Fear and hope. We've talked about last week and this week, the hopes and fears of all the years. And this story highlights our fear that God will not keep his promises, that our waiting will be in vain. But the story also highlights the hope that God is faithful. 
That God is faithful to keep his promises. No matter what we do or how we mess up, he's faithful to keep his promises. And his promises are ultimately met in Jesus Christ, in whom all God's promises are yes and amen. So let me just close with these few thoughts from the story as we apply it to our own life. And the first is that God isn't blindsided by our doubts. He's not shocked by our lack of faith. God knows our weaknesses. He knows our failings. He knows our impatience. But none of those things, even our most heinous sins, none of these can stop him from keeping his promises. And as we'll see in a moment, by his grace, God can make some of the biggest mistake makers in the world, he can make them into heroes of faith. Our faith doesn't have to be perfect. It simply has to be placed in the right person, Jesus Christ. Secondly, God uses our waiting to teach us faith. God makes promises so that we'll learn to trust in him. Imagine if God was to fulfill what he wanted to do through Abram and Sarai, Abraham and Sarah, yet he never told them about it. Would it have been such a struggle of faith for them? Would they have learned, would they have grown in their faith if they didn't know about the promise ahead of time? Why didn't he just tell them the day before instead of 25 years before? God makes us wait to teach us faith. And I think God, the waiting that God puts in our lives by his plan is intentional. It's always intentional. It's always for our good. So over the course of at least 25 years, maybe their entire life, God formed that faith in Abraham and Sarah. Their confidence did not emerge overnight. It was built through adversity. It was built through prayers, seemingly unanswered prayers, it was built through doubts and through trials and even, even through their own folly. But in the end, here is what can be said about them from the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, starting at verse 8, where the writer says this. He says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. And by faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and I love this phrase, and him as good as dead, Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Even in our doubts, even in our fears, even in our questioning, God can make us people of faith through Christ. And the final point I would make this morning is that God is not slow in keeping his promises. 2 Peter chapter 3, we read, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So when we in our own lives run up against the unbudging enemy of time, 
when we're forced to wait, and when it seems like God won't answer us, He is working. Whether we see it or not, He is working. So today, do you feel like you're caught in an insufferable season of waiting? I encourage you to look to Jesus. Are you angry with God for not answering your prayers? Look to Jesus. Are you doubtful that God will do anything? Are you afraid of the future? Look to Jesus. Because all of God's promises are met in that one, born in Bethlehem, to allay our fears and to fulfill all of our hopes. Jesus, who is the Christ. You pray with me. Our good, loving Father, we're grateful that you have sent your son Jesus to allay our fears and to fulfill our deepest hopes and desires and longings. And I know this morning that you find us impatient, often questioning, doubtful, anxious, tense. Jesus, this morning I pray that you would work in us, work through your word, by your spirit, in our own hearts, strengthening our faith and drawing our eyes to Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith, and who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and now is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus, we look to you for help in our time of need. We look to, to you to encourage us and to strengthen us and to fill us with faith that we might know you better, that we might glorify you, and that we might follow you in this world and how, how you would have us to live and what you would have us to do. God, we are confident that you will fulfill all your promises to us in Jesus Christ. And this morning, God, we want to sit back and stand and worship calling out for you to fill your promises and glorify yourself. We pray all this in the name of Jesus, our Lord and King. Amen.